Story 4 The Sweet Spot by Achi Obejas. Issa's wife, Louise, had startling green eyes like a cat, but no ordinary cat. A Persian breed, maybe named Soraya or Mahin. With one pie slice of her right iris, a light copper color. Issa liked to think of its glint as the clapper of a bell, the unheard peal ringing over and over. She loved those eyes, even if they belonged to an ordinary Midwestern girl, a PhD in English from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, with lots of stories about a long ago radicalism that were hard to reconcile with her laconic daily routine. A head of tight red coils and skin so delicate and white that any pressure left a pink print for hours. Most days, Louise would get up at six and put on water for her chai, then grind coffee for Issa. After she dressed for work, casual because she managed a bookstore, one of those storied independents whose regulars could recall legendary readings by Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Octavia Butler, and that one night when somebody grabbed Emilio Insulera's crotch during a film screening, she would wake Issa because she'd undoubtedly rolled over on her good ear, shutting off any chance of hearing the alarm chirping on the nightstand and ignoring the vibrating watch on her wrist. Issa and Louise had been together 16 years, 10 of those married, and in that time, they'd been both cheerful and strained, but more important, adaptable. Each move they made was determined by their kids. They'd had one apiece with the same anonymous donor, both of whom turned out to have perfect hearing. But Mateo needed glasses at six, and Emma had asthma. Issa would watch Emma struggle for air and have to hold herself back from administering mouth-to-mouth or ordering an oxygen mask from a website she discovered was the Amazon of emergency medical supplies. Because they'd never come up with a permanent or regular schedule, every morning they posed the same questions. Who was taking the kids to school? Who was making their lunches? Were they set on after-school pickup? How much time would Issa have for work that day? She was a freelance content specialist before she had to take Mateo to swim lessons. Who was going to the supermarket? They knew they should have a set schedule for grocery shopping. But Issa was an inveterate improviser, something Louise had loved when they were dating, but was considerably less charming after they started a daily life and had kids, and went only whenever the toilet paper ran low, or when she had a hankering for plantains or rice pudding, leaving Louise to figure out what to do with the stale sourdough and what to combine with the wilting broccoli rob. They shared a grocery list on an app that suggested meals based on their proposed purchases. Each item was followed by a big I or L to delineate who'd added what. But Issa rarely inputted anything, and when she did, she exempted it from consideration for any possible meal plan. Now that they'd decided to separate, they told friends it didn't matter why. But the truth was, Louise had taken a lover, a stringy straight woman 
who seemed to have become a permanent fixture around the house from one day to the other. Every once in a while, the new lover would disappear with Louise for a few days of kid-free bliss, leaving Issa on her own to figure out three kid-friendly meals a day until Louise's tryst was over. Just how many times could they have mac and cheese? Did a whole salad bowl of popcorn count as a meal? The only promise she made Louise that she felt equipped to keep was avoiding fast food. Without Louise in the car, it could take her 10 whole minutes to get her order straight. Making the voice on the black box next to the brightly lit menu in the drive-thru repeat everything until Mateo and or Emma got impatient and screamed, Mommy, he's asking if you want beef, chicken, or steak on your taco salad. And then it would take just a beat before the three of them would shout in unison, what's the difference between beef and steak? And then it'd start again with the black box screeching, what? And Mateo, what do you mean, what? And so on. When it was Louise's turn, she'd order a pizza now and again. But most of the time, she'd immerse herself in something complicated she wanted them to appreciate and thank her for. Pork loin and vodka sauce with authentic Azorian cheese or poached shrimp with Meyer lemon ginger coolie. The kids generally ate the rice or veggie side, then snuck a yogurt or some cereal. But the back and forth at the table, the shrimp is mushy. That's how it's supposed to be, creamy. I said mushy, not creamy. Was always shrill and would feel like pinching on Issa's eardrum, which made her queasy when she got up to clear the table. She'd poke her fingers in her ears, even though it accomplished nothing. Issa's hearing hadn't gone all at once. It wasn't as if she'd woken up one day and sound was absent from her world. Instead, it had faded. She began to notice she was asking people to repeat things more and more. Sometimes she'd respond so out of left field that Mateo and Emma would laugh or cringe. One day, she realized she could no longer hear the garbage truck on its rounds outside her house. Watching TV without subtitles was like a tuba recital, and announcements on trains became waves of static. Most voices were muffled or slurred. Her own speech had slowed too, as if she were trying to role model volume and pacing for her interlocutors. Louise had been patient. She'd repeat things over and over, first louder, then slowly, crisply pronouncing each syllable. Somewhere along the line, Asa had begun losing the kids. Neither's voice seemed to hit her frequencies. She'd ask Louise, what did they say? This had become the default, Louise as interpreter. What mommy means is, but Issa didn't need or want that kind of help. And this made her feel left out adrift on a nameless sea. Sometimes she'd stand in the middle of the kitchen, so stunned by her loss she couldn't remember if the kids were fed 
or if it was Tuesday and Emma was waiting for her to pick her up from softball, or if she'd left a candle lit somewhere. Sometime in the spring of the previous year, Issa got up early one day and stumbled into the kitchen to find Louise and Esther bent over a recipe book, shoulders touching and mouths within inches of each other. Esther, or Esty, as Louise liked to call her, was part of the parents' pool that drove the kids to school during the year. She had a very large and comfortable vehicle, a van of sorts, that allowed the kids to watch TV and put their water bottles in individual cup holders. Esther was married to a man, but upon seeing them together, Issa felt a slight buzzing in her ears. They'd made a batch of bread pudding pancakes to surprise the kids, including Esther's twin girls, both on the spectrum, who sat at the dining room table not talking or moving, while Mateo sprawled across the floor and tied his shoes, and Emma screamed from the bathroom that someone had used her hairbrush. As it turned out, all four kids found the bread pudding pancakes too sweet and gooey and pushed their plates away after the first bite. This didn't disappoint Louise and Esther, who shrugged and laughed and scraped the goop into the garbage without offering Issa so much as a taste. Issa thought about asking how long Esther had been coming early to make breakfast with her, but they'd been married long enough that she knew she wouldn't get a straight answer and decided to spare herself the irritation. About a month later, they were invited to Esther's husband's birthday party, which threw Issa because, to her knowledge, neither she nor Louise had so much as laid eyes on the man. It was a potluck, for which Louise made gluten-free panko-crusted crab cakes. It turned out Esther was both a pescatarian and gluten-free. To Issa's surprise, the totality of the guest list for the party was the husband and his parents, Esther and her parents, and Louise and her. What the hell are we doing here? Issa whispered to her wife in the hallway as one exited the bathroom and the other entered. Surely she's got friends who she's closer to than us. And doesn't he have any friends? This is so weird. Louise shrugged. I don't know, she said, but she was smiling. And her green eyes had that Soraya Mahin glint, the clapper ringing with happiness. If Issa had had to describe Esther's husband, she would have said he was pleasant enough, a good dad, as evidenced by the display of projects he had done with the girls, which were all over the house. Esther bragged about her boxing lessons in a way that suggested she had an undeservedly high opinion of herself. And as Esther spoke, Issa noticed her very long manicured nails and considered how uncomfortable they might be inside a boxing glove. She found it comforting to imagine Esther's fingers curled, nails pinching her palms. When Issa finally got an audiology test, the specialist, a guy named Teo, handed her a couple of sheets of paper with graphs in black and white that showed her where her hearing began and ended with big yellow circles drawn with a highlighter. So what can we do? Issa asked, 
not really wanting to examine the sheets too closely. Teo looked at her, alarmed. Once you lose hearing, you can't get it back, he said. Didn't you read any of the materials we sent you? You mean there's no LASIK for hearing? No. Some people say certain kinds of chiropractic treatments help, mostly with tinnitus, hyperacusis, that kind of thing, he said. But Issa must have looked despondent because his voice went up a register in an attempt to be cheery. You know, they're doing all kinds of experiments these days. For the most part, they know what causes deafness and they're working on regenerating the loss of hair cells in the cochlea. It won't be anytime soon, but they'll probably come up with LASIK for hearing in your lifetime. In your lifetime wasn't soon enough for Issa. And as it turned out, Teo's assertion that the cause of hearing loss was well known was only partly true. When he really got going about her particular case, it turned out hearing loss was a bit of a scientific mystery. No one really knew what was going on in her cochlea, that tiny snail embedded in the brain. It's too deep in your head to get a good x-ray or MRI, said Teo. And if you cut into it, you'll go completely deaf. So I'm not going to get better. It wasn't a question, but Teo treated it as such, telling Issa about the wonders of today's hearing aids, how they're so precise you can hear a baby breathing in the next room, how she could pipe music right into her brain and control how much noise she was willing to tolerate. He showed her mics she could clip on friends to hear them better across from her at a noisy restaurant and how she could stream calls right into her ears. He said if her hearing loss got profound enough, she'd be eligible for a cochlear implant, and then she could retrain her brain to pick out the sound of needles falling on the floor, or a cat purring next door. What he didn't mention was how financially prohibitive everything was. With most insurance companies, including ESA's, refusing to cover hearing aids, never mind the fancy mics and Bluetooth stuff. The cost of even the most rudimentary aids was in the thousands of dollars. The particular ones Issa needed were so expensive, she had to accept another client to help pay for them, which meant she set herself up for a busy June in which she and Louise barely saw each other. She had to meet with the client and sometimes operate out of their office which was about an hour from their house. Because they worked past regular hours, she often came home well after dinner, and sometimes even after the kids had gone to bed. What she hadn't realized then was that Esther would be around so much as a result. She began taking Mateo and Emma to their summer camp to help on the mornings Issa was working so Louise wouldn't feel overwhelmed. In exchange, Louise would pick up her girls from their special ed camp in the afternoon. Issa would see the photos Louise posted on Instagram of Emma happily cuddling on the couch with them, the girls expressionless. Sometime after that, Issa noticed Esther started spending the night, 
it was simply more convenient, especially if she was helping with the dinner when Issa wasn't around. Issa would hear them laughing on the bed in the guest room when she got home, a sound like popcorn or finger snapping. Louise always woke up in their bed, which was no small comfort. One time she spied them shoulder to shoulder again, their mouths within inches, while they watched Beetlejuice. Louise's laptop propped up on Esther's belly. Issa knew it was Beetlejuice, only because of the reflection in the window. Otherwise, their voices came to her from very far away, like a conversation underwater. When Issa first started using the hearing aids, the world seemed filtered through a TV, controlled by an imprecise remote. It took a while to figure out how to find the right volume. At first, she thought loud was what she wanted. But then she realized loud also meant all kinds of aural debris came thundering through too, like ambulances on the highway. Instinctively, she went to cover her ears until she remembered the app on her phone that let her turn down the sound. At work meetings, she realized how much she'd been missing. Suddenly, everyone thought she was quick-witted and sharp, and she was. But a few weeks after starting to use the hearing aids, Issa noticed she was still relying on other cues. She heard better with her glasses on, that was certain, and she was still expending huge amounts of energy, trying to interpret facial expressions and body language, grabbing onto key words, and leaning on Louise. What did she say? had become a mantra of sorts, with Louise patiently repeating, rephrasing the world. Later, much, much later, Louise would confess that though she was glad to help, the dependency had begun to make her feel pressured and responsible in ways that also made her uneasy. Issa complained to Tail during one of their sessions to adjust her hearing aids but he got frustrated with her. You have to learn to hear with these. It's not the same thing, he said. You want everything to be the same, to locate sound perfectly, but you're going to have to work at it, to listen differently, to mark and measure space and find your sweet spot. But she was so frustrated. She signed up for a lip reading class, hoping to connect with others in her situation but only three others enrolled, a married couple, and a teenager who came with a different relative or friend to each class. Issa learned all about phonemes and visemes and realized that even though she was an impatient and not especially good student, she was still learning, and that this new skill enhanced her hearing beyond what she might have imagined. She also considered taking ASL, but realized she didn't know any other deaf people. Would she eventually have to find a deaf happy hour or meetup? She looked at her calendar skeptically. She was already so busy, so overtaxed. Then she looked long and hard at the listing for family ASL classes at the community center in case of future profound hearing loss. When would that come? Maybe never and they'd just waste their time learning ASL. If she could still hear, 
however hampered, and they, not just her, but the whole family, didn't know any deaf people. Would ASL make sense at all? Issa remembered when Mateo was born, how she and Louise promised to speak to him in Spanish, to raise him as a bilingual child. And at first, they were both very diligent. Nariz, Louise would say, pointing at his nose. And Issa would read books to him. But the truth was that Issa and Louise's relationship existed in English. They'd never spoken to each other in Spanish. It didn't come naturally, and neither of them had the discipline to work at making the switch. As a result, Mateo and Emma could greet Issa's family in Spanish, but nothing more. Emma would be great at ASL with her theatricality, but Mateo, his vision was so poor, and he was so shy. Issa read the class description again. Maybe someday, she thought, she'd corral them into it. If it turned out she needed it. It was sometime in November, right before Thanksgiving, when Louise told Issa about Esther. That is, when she finally admitted after months of evasion that she and Esther were lovers. Louise asked for a divorce, which didn't strike Issa as a surprise, but she resisted anyway. She couldn't imagine how her story would end without Louise and those Soraya Mahin green eyes, those bells, the way everything seemed to work out, no matter their lack of planning and schedules. More significantly, though, Issa knew they'd never argue about custody. She couldn't fathom an existence in which the kids weren't always present. What would she do on the days and nights Louise had them? The silence that would fill the house seemed greater than anything she'd ever feared. I want a life that's more intentional. Louise said, we can do that. Issa responded. The ringing in her ears was back, now like an insistent telephone. We can have that. I will do anything, Issa thought, suddenly aware of every one of Emma's photo booth strips on the fridge, and Mateo's shoes scattered just off the front door, ready for her to trip on them in the middle of the night. Would they split the strips? Half staying, the other half pinned to Louise's new fridge? Did Mateo have enough shoes for two places in this suddenly precious chaos by the front door? Issa wanted each and every piece to stay where it was. Louise stroked her arm. No. We can't, she said with a sad smile. Of course we can, Issa insisted. What, you think I can't learn new ways of doing things? You are learning new ways of doing things, Louise said. I'm really proud of you. The way you're handling your hearing loss? See? It was all she could do to not yank off her hearing aids, stick her fingers in her ears, and try to turn off the ringing. She knew stress just made things worse, but she couldn't avoid it. Louise shook her head and whispered, no, baby, not this time. But I can, I mean, unless there's someone else. Though of course, of course, Issa knew there was someone else knew who it was, 
could probably diagram their love story if the occasion arose. But then, just as she stood on the edge of the cliff that meant her life as she knew it was over, there was nothing she wanted more than to be wrong, to be so very wrong. I mean, if this is really about that, then that would be another story. There is someone else, said Louise. Her voice such a wisp, Issa had to lip-read her. There is? Who? But she knew. Esty. Esther. Louise clarified, in case she hadn't heard right. Esty. Issa thought in surrender as she felt herself falling and falling, endlessly falling. Of course. Esty. The truth was, she'd guessed it back in August when Louise casually mentioned that besides all the mornings and evenings at their house, there was also now a routine of afternoons in the park with the kids. Doesn't she work? Issa asked. I thought she worked. She does, Louise said. That copper glinting full tilt, the silent bell ringing. She's a writer. When does she write? Is she suffering writer's block or something? Issa asked. No, actually. She's writing like mad. She, she says I inspire her. You inspire her. Issa couldn't have explained why she found that so ludicrous. But she did, and she laughed, which she realized immediately had hurt Louise's feelings. That's funny to you, huh? Yeah, I mean, no, of course not. But inspire, it's just such an odd word. I thought maybe I didn't hear you right. That same night, Louise told her that Esther would sometimes sit by her on the playground and stare at her, and that the stares made her self-conscious. Then tell her to stop, for Christ's sake, Issa said, exasperated. She didn't want to hear this. But the thing is, I like it too, Louise confessed. I don't think anyone's ever looked at me, ever seen me, quite like that before. Really? Issa asked. The very fact that Louise was telling her this, confiding in her like a friend and not a lover, was a revelation she didn't want to acknowledge. She would ride this out, she told herself. She would play along. They'd been together a long time, and there'd been crushes before. Close calls, vaguely threatening situations, and Issa knew if she refused to acknowledge them, if she refused to name them, that Louise would be too cowardly to confess, and they'd both be relieved when the storm passed. And the little ship that was their relationship righted itself on its own. She says I'm luminous. She said this at the playground? Yes. She said she thought so from the minute she first saw me. When was that? Apparently about a year ago, at the school talent show. Well, before the show, when I was talking to Mateo by the side of the stage, 
trying to give him confidence about his new glasses. She said, there was a light coming off my face as if I were the moon itself. Is there something I need to worry about here? Her hand was trembling and she shoved it in her pants pocket. No, no, of course not, Louise said sadly. You know I'd never do anything to threaten our family. But Issa was threatened. She couldn't come home without running into Esther or some remnant of Esther, her laundry in the washer, her herring loaf in the fridge, Emma trying to make her daughter smile, or Matteo being irritated by them, Esther herself washing Louise's car in the driveway, or reading her poetry out on the deck surrounded by an arch of carefully arranged tiki torches. Staring at Esther's mouth, Issa could make out exactly what she was reading. Had we but world enough and time. Is it possible we could get some family time or some you and me time soon? Issa asked. She'd come to regret not signing up for the ASL classes. If for no other reason than she'd have had Louise and the kids to herself for those 60 minutes once a week. Louise seemed confused. This is family time, she said. Apparently counting Esther and her girls doing homework with Mateo and Emma at the dining room table as part of their nucleus. Do you want to do something just with me? Is that what you're asking? Yes, I'd like a date with my wife. Is that okay? Of course, Louise said, popping open the calendar on her phone. Doesn't her husband never want to spend time with her? He does. When? I don't know. Don't you wonder? No, I'm just happy she has time for me. She seems to only have time for you. You're being so unfair. She's here to help because you're not. I'm not because on top of everything else I'm financially responsible for, I have to work even more to pay for the world's most expensive hearing aids and all my deaf classes. Yes, and I'm trying to support you in that. And she's trying to support me in supporting you. Has she heard her correctly? In that instant, Louise's cell phone screen faded to black, taking the calendar back into the void. There was so much commotion, so much activity at the house during the day that Issa had found it impossible to work, even when she locked the door to her attic office and pulled off the hearing aids. In order to get things done, she started going to bed at the same time as the kids, and getting up at four or five in the morning, buying a few hours of stillness to do her creative work. She'd do the banking and answer emails later, when it didn't matter how loud it got when Matteo had a meltdown because Esther's girls had borrowed his comic books without permission. It made sense that, since she was up before everybody else, she'd just go ahead and pack their lunch when she took a break to refill her coffee mug. One day, as she was placing a bag of crunchy seaweed in a lunchbox, Issa looked up and saw a drowsy Mateo rubbing his eyes with his fists. Buenos dias, Mateo, she said. 
he mumbled something back. What are you doing up so early? He looked over at his lunchbox. Is that seaweed? Yes. I don't like seaweed. Since when? Since Esty started packing red hot cheese puffs instead. He reached in the pantry to pull out a bag, but came up empty handed. Oh man, we're out of them. Can you please get more, mommy? I really like them. When Issa opened the shared grocery app to add the cheese puffs, she noticed the list now included an inordinate amount of seafood, as well as gluten-free bread and crackers. Then she realized Louise had not merely included things for Esther on their family grocery list, but that Louise had added Esther herself. There was a big E after each of the new items. Then, one night in early December, Issa came home and found the house unusually quiet. Esther's van was nowhere in sight. She'd even driven around the block to make sure. She suddenly realized Esther hadn't been as much of a presence lately. Emma had even told her she missed her, which Issa had pretended she hadn't heard. When she unlocked the door, she found the kids already in bed and Louise at the dining room table nursing a cup of tea. Issa walked over and dropped her bag, then pulled up a chair and sat. Louise poured her a cup and added agave, the way Issa liked. What happened? Issa asked. Esther came by for a bit, to talk, but it didn't go great. Issa pulled out her phone and went straight to the app for her hearing aids, turning on the noise reduction and focusing the sensors on the area right in front of her, where Louise was sitting. It's crazy, isn't it? Louise's voice sounded fuller to Issa now, though it had an odd electronic tinge. What part? All of it, said Louise with a shrug. I think about leaving all the time, you know? I do. And then I think, where would I go if she doesn't make the same move? I thought the whole idea was that you'd go together. Well, I don't think her husband would like that very much. Wait, she's not leaving her husband, but you're going to divorce me? You're going to divorce me even though I need you, but she's staying with the husband she never sees anyway? I don't know, I don't know. Then Louise said something else, but it got lost when she buried her head in her hands. What? Can you repeat that, please? Forget it. Come on, don't do this. I just didn't hear you. Don't punish me for not hearing you. The husband, it turned out, had recalled Esther, not completely, but enough to change the way the story had been going. Issa sighed. I love our family, Issa. I do. I love the kids. I love you. But I think, is that enough? I know you'll be fine, better than fine. You just have to stop thinking you can't go at it alone. I will, but I won't be fine. Don't say that. You will be, and so will the kids. They'll wind up in therapy. And aren't we sharing custody? Of course we're sharing custody. And 
Anyway, everybody winds up in therapy. At least they'll have a common problem. I would like to spare them therapy. They have a right to not have to go to therapy, to live a life in which therapy isn't necessary. They have a right to not have to wonder why Esther is here all the time. They don't wonder, Issa. They know. My God, don't you think they know? Esty takes them everywhere. Helps with homework, does their laundry. Where the fuck have you been? And I have rights too, you know, regardless of the kids, like to happiness. I didn't know you were unhappy, Issa exclaimed. Though all she could think about was, regardless of the kids. What the hell? I know, Louise shouted, exasperated. That's my whole damn point. You haven't known anything about me in ages. Do you know what kind of tea I drink, Issa? Issa glanced down at her cup. Green tea. That's what I'm having now. But do you know what I drink in the morning? Earl Grey, with a little bit of low-fat milk and brown sugar. Not for years. I drink chai. And that, my dear sweet Issa, is my point. Issa realized that when she dreamed, she now visualized her deaf self. She wore her hearing aids and heard everything pure and clear. The drone of a plane in the sky, the different parts of a sneeze, the doorbell vibrating. In her dreams, she had her own sign language, and she spoke it with ease, bending into the phrases, her eyes widening or fluttering, her mouth twisting for emphasis as her shoulders slipped back. It was like she was talking while dancing to an invisible hula hoop, using her whole body, her knees, her pelvis. In these visions, the kids wore hearing aids too, and Mateo would offer her fun facts about hearing. Snakes have no ears, he'd explain, hula hooping too, as he talked and signed. But they can pick up vibrations because they still have some vestigial ear parts connected to the jawbone. Issa knew he loved pronouncing new words. His hands were flying all over the place. Did you know they can't hear themselves hissing? Could she hear herself? Issa checked, clicking her tongue real fast, rolling her R's in exaggerated fashion. The hissing, Mateo said, was just to warn others. And then he hissed, and Emma hissed, and all three of them hissed. But Louise, who'd been there all along tying shoelaces and washing behind their ears and slapping pieces of bread together into sandwiches, suddenly covered her ears. Issa couldn't tell if she was wearing hearing aids too. Suddenly, Louise dropped down between the three of them, crossing her legs as if she were about to meditate, and began to sob. The hissing, Issa realized, sounded like Esther's name. The relationship with Louise, like Issa's hearing, hadn't faded all at once either. At one point, it had seemed they'd be together forever. 
and that felt exhilarating. Even after the rush dissipated, there were still so many ways they connected that seemed golden. If anything, Issa had become more grateful over the years. She believed in her soul that they saw each other's flaws, each crack and fissure, and that their love filled them with the same promise. I see you, all of you, all the things you don't want the world to know. I see what you're ashamed of, what terrifies you, and I still choose you. And then, somewhere along the line, it happened, like a slow-moving desert wind. They began to turn their backs in bed, to run out of things to talk about, to repeat the same stories. Their days became filled with updates on work and scheduling, reports on the kids, and negotiations for playdates, summer camps, laundry, and nights out with friends. The glint in Louise's eye dimmed. She would get used to it, Issa told herself. She would compensate. She would learn to live unable to locate sound. And she would figure out how to decipher what the kids were saying without Louise interpreting. If necessary, she'd make them say it 13 times, or write it down, or she'd clip a mic on them. She would go to a deaf meetup. She'd go to therapy. She'd try experimental treatments. She would meditate and give up salt. She'd learn to schedule grocery trips, but also vacations with the kids when it was her turn. She'd learn to pick them up at Louise and Esther's new place, because she knew that's how Louise would move out, with some place to go and Esther to welcome her. And she, Issa, would have to contend not just with not having her kids all the time, but with the fact that Esther would be weighing in even more than she already did. That Emma and Matteo had already been lulled into accepting her, and that when the family portrait was taken, it would be her, Issa, standing alone on the margins while the six of them filled the frame. Issa would love them more each time she saw them, and cry less each time they were with Louise and Esther and away from her. She would accept Esther. She would come to accept her so profoundly that, many years into the future, when Louise began to waver, she would feel sorry for Esther and for the kids, who'd grown to love her and rely on her. One lonely night after Louise and the kids had gone to bed, Anissa was watching a movie on her iPad on the couch. She felt the buzz of the doorbell and quickly glanced at her watch. It was almost midnight. She clambered up off the couch and peered through the peephole, which framed Esther soaking wet. What are you doing here at this hour? Issa asked as she opened the door and gestured for her to come in. Esther ran her hands through her dripping hair. Are they all asleep? Yes, of course they're asleep. Don't you know what time it is? Esther nodded and bit her lip. Listen, can you hear me all right? Yes, perfectly. They were mirroring each other, each in a semi-crouch anticipating the other's jab. I know you know what's going on. Everybody knows what's going on. Well, 
No, and that's why I'm here. What are you talking about? Issa scrunched up her face. Look, listen, I love Louise and your kids. Wait, what is this? What are you doing? I'm trying to explain something to you. I don't want to hear anything from you. Well, you have to. You have to understand my side of the story. Esther said as she reached across Issa's chest and pulled her up to her by the opposite shoulder. Issa tried to shake her off, but Esther proved surprisingly strong. I just want you to know she's the love of my life, but stop, stop, Issa said, struggling to free herself and reaching up to cover her ears. No, listen, it doesn't matter. As they jostled at the front door, Issa heard Louise stirring upstairs. Stop, Issa said, one hand cupping Esther's mouth, while the other grabbed at the back of her neck. Her ears were ringing, a loud, clanging song coming from somewhere deep in her cranium. Just shut up, shut up, she told Esther. And go, go, get out of here. It hit Issa all at once. Somehow, she'd gotten the idea to keep their story separate. Hers and Louise's, from Louise and Esther's, and the kids. She had been treating each as a separate entity, with its own pace, its own light, its own gravity. But now, as she stepped out of the house with car keys in hand, each story mapped onto the other, the pages rustling as she slammed the car door and turned on her GPS. She thought, today I had yogurt with pistachios and honey for breakfast, and Louise took a long hot shower that set off the smoke alarm in the hallway and nearly shredded my ears. And Esther came to stand before me. She thought, today I walked and read and played around on my phone, and Louise went for a run, and Esther cut the stalks from the flowers Louise sent her and put them in a vase. She thought, I wiped the kitchen counters, and Louise swept the garage floor, and Esther wrote six new poems. She remembered Emma and the twins on the couch, and Matteo barely glancing at them, their presence as common at the house now as Issa herself. It was all related, connected, linked. Her love for Louise, Louise's love for Esther, Esther's love, the children sharing food, assigning themselves seats in Esther's van. As she drove through the thickening rain, Issa turned her head, scanning from one side of her windshield to the other, because she could barely see what was in front of her. A truck passed her and pulled the car sideways toward disaster, but Issa resisted. When she got to Esther's house, she didn't ring the bell or knock, but gently pushed open the door left ajar, which startled Esther, who was sitting on the couch with her head in her hands. Her face was wet, but it was hard to tell if it was rain or tears. Issa wanted to speak, but all she could manage as she stepped toward her wife's lover was to mouth the words, don't be such a coward. Thunder clapped down on Esther's house, 
and lightning brightened them for an instant. Esther jumped, but Issa calmly remembered reading that thunder only had about 100 decibels. She reached over and offered Esther a hand. As soon as Esther touched her, Issa could hear Louise's bells ringing, no longer silent, and she could hear them perfectly, the way they were intended to be heard. 